Welcome to Two Inch Heels, an autobiographical novel of my 11-week odyssey, backpacking through Western Europe in 1973 at age 18. Written and read by me, Cooper Zale. This is part 35, Snow Day. While the young women in our circle pay the fare to take the Cog Railway up to the Sphinx Observatory near the summit of the Jungfrau, the male types and I play in the snow with the local kids, and I have a close encounter with Michael. It was Thursday, November 29, 1973, and I woke up to a softer, more diffuse light coming through the small hostel bunkroom windows, which were high up on the walls, so you really could not see in or out very well. The energy of the outside felt very different, subdued and very quiet. A couple guys were still sleeping, but most were up and out. I generally slept in a t-shirt and underwear, my long underwear here in wintry Grindelwald. So I pulled on my jeans, grabbed my towel and washcloth hung on my pack frame overnight to dry, dug my toiletries and my flannel shirt out of my pack. I sniffed the shirt to make sure it did not stink too much from past days' sweat. I headed to the bathroom and tried the shower to make sure it would actually get warm this morning before committing to taking my clothes off and entering the stall. This place had been the exception to the general rule that hostels did not have hot water in their showers. But after two mornings of glorious hot showers, I still did not trust it. But the water was hot, so for the third straight day, after a deliciously long hot shower, my body started the day completely squeaky clean. I had gotten up in the middle of the night having to pee and half expected to hear Michael and Monica grunting and moaning in one of the shower stalls. But if they had had another clandestine sexual encounter overnight, it was not happening while I was in there. Monica was so taken with Michael, and so uninhibited and self-possessed, and he and all the rest of us guys so enthralled with her awesome sexuality, that I imagine the two of them had probably figured out how to do it again, and it that I had not even come close to doing myself. It occurred to me, ironically, given the mountain to the southwest of the village called the Jungfrau, or Virgin in English, that Monica was the Jungfrau, or young woman, but I was the Jungfrau, the virgin, though that word probably wasn't applicable to a male person who had not had sex yet. In patriarchal culture, that really wasn't an issue. It was only women who needed that sort of certification of the provenance of their genitals. Finishing the shower, stowing my t-shirt and toiletries in my pack, donning my hiking boots and rehanging my towel and washcloth on my pack frame, I ventured out into the common room. Through the big window out onto the deck I could see the snow was falling, big white flakes slowly drifting straight down with no wind to blow them about. I walked out onto the deck, the big wet snowflakes gliding down all about me, nestling on my shoulders, some caught in my big mane of hair, melting from my body heat into tiny drips of cold water on my scalp. It was dead quiet 
and I stood completely still, savoring the lack of sound. When the snow falls like that, with no wind to generate any whooshing noise, the big flakes absorb all the sound. The only thing even the least bit audible is when a flake falls on the outer part of your ear canal and makes that ever so slight crinkle noise as it loses its structural integrity and transitions from a solid crystalline matrix to a mundane drop of water. The awesome mountains across the valley, such a striking presence as they revealed themselves to me for the first time in yesterday's sunny skies, were obscured again today by the snow clouds. The village of Grindelwald was barely visible down the hill through the thick snowfall. I recalled weekday winter mornings of heavy snow when I was a kid, listening to the listing of school closures on the local Ann Arbor radio station until I joyously heard my own. Going outside into the pristine white world, maybe six inches of fresh snow on our little street, unsullied as of yet by any tire tracks or footprints. Feeling that sense of being totally in the moment, outside of time, sheltered at least for now from the standing edict to report to school for education and adult supervision. Unsupervised, unsullied, unleashed. I and my fellow backpackers here in Grindelwald were all probably as unleashed as we had ever been in our youths and might ever be in our adulthoods to follow. Yeah, I was in the moment, but not completely outside of time. There still was the matter of breakfast, wonderful granola and fresh fruit yogurt, already paid for and only served until nine, and I with no watch or other timekeeping device to monitor that approaching and enforced deadline. So I silently acknowledged the wonderful falling snow one last time and retreated to the hostel dining room. There were the alleged sex partners, Michael and Monica, sitting across from each other, smiling and laughing and gesticulating with spoons full of big dollops of peach yogurt. Monica with yet another t-shirt with those nipple sightings obviously signaling that her big killer tits were unleashed underneath as they had been yesterday and the day before. I still hadn't seen her wear anything over her chest other than a t-shirt and that light jacket of hers with which she brazenly scoffed at Mother Nature by keeping it unzipped except in the coldest night air. She seemed such a polar bear that I would lay odds she had a pair of shorts in her backpack that she would gladly put on if the temperature got much above freezing. As per usual, all the guys were in orbit around her, this morning including Derek, his two new British mates, Malk and Dredd, and Matt. Ragnar was there at the table next to Michael across from Monica, looking like she was trying hard to stay involved in the conversation and not be just a third wheel to the granola-crunching, yogurt-slurping, clandestine lovebirds. Noting the clock on the wall was almost at nine, I grabbed a tray and got my own big helpings of the hostel's breakfast staples and was bold enough to sit down next to Monica and across from Ragna. Monica kept up her conversation with Michael, but acknowledged me with a flutter of her fingers in my direction with her spoonless left hand. Just 18 like me, but she had a palpable presence about her, 
six feet tall like me, athletic, gorgeous, curvy body, even more gorgeous when it was in motion, stunningly beautiful face with high cheekbones and blue-blue eyes, and a kind of magnetic charisma that just demanded your attention and respect. There was no situation I had seen her in where she wasn't the obvious alpha person in the milieu. Yet she was not the least bit stuck up or ego involved in any sort of way that I could see, though my judgment could easily have been impaired by my libido. It was surely my libido that dialed up the Doors song 20th Century Fox in my mind's jukebox, and I guiltily and greedily did not hit the stop button hearing the band's signature organ riffs in the background. She's the queen of cool, and she's the lady who waits. Since her mind left school, it never hesitates. She won't waste time on elementary talk, cause she's a 20th Century Fox. She's a 20th Century Fox. Got the world locked up inside a plastic box. She's a 20th Century Fox. Oh, yeah. She was, in one word, awesome. And to be around her and to have her acknowledge you as a unique person made you feel awesome, too. Even if she had anointed some other guy as the object of her lust. I mean, I totally got it. He was very good-looking, too. Chocolate skin, broad nose, deep brown eyes, almost six feet himself, but his big afro making him seem taller. But more gentle, cerebral, and inward in his energy than hers. I could see why she was attracted to him. I was a bit attracted to him as well, with his own quieter, subtler, maybe not yet completely developed charisma. Then there was her older, almost stepsister Ragna, sitting across from me, a more conventional five foot six height making her a bit shorter than most of the guys and definitely diminutive to her de facto younger sibling. She had long brown straight hair which hung down to the middle of her back and over her breasts in front. Her face was dominated by nerdy, thick-framed, black plastic glasses that framed her intense gray eyes and rested on a long, narrow nose. Her body was slight, without the obvious curves that Playboy and Penthouse and other such respectable skin magazines had trained most of us guys to lust after in a female person's body. You wouldn't say she was intensely shy, but she was shy and definitely intense in a very cerebral, mind-like-a-steel-trap sort of way. So all us guys had a thing for Monica, but I was late to the party realizing that I had a thing for Ragna, too. It was the story of my life that my whole sexual radar, or whatever you call it, was so underdeveloped and untrusted that I was doubting the pretty obvious evidence that she was developing a thing for me as well. 
I certainly had spent all that time with her playing cards, including the session yesterday morning where I had taught her to play Russian Bank after she had said she'd love me to teach her. Maybe in her cerebral shyness, teach was the closest she'd ever get to a stand-in for romantic and sexual interest. And last night down in the tavern, we had that moment after my singing along to the German folk song, Du Du Leaksmeer and Herzen. My mom had taught me the words in German, but not the English translation. Ragna, who knew her German, had asked me to tell her each line of the German so she could translate it for me. We had both had several big glasses of beer. I suspect more than Ragna normally drank so she was probably buzzed and less shy than normal. So there we were in that very noisy environment, looking at and leaning towards each other to try and hear the other's words, me saying to her in German, Die, die, zartlichen Triebe, fulich allein nur für dich. As I looked into her intense gray eyes, and her saying back at me in English, eyes still locked on mine, the most tender desires I alone feel only for you. In the moment, I thought she was just being helpful and translating the words for me. But several minutes later, it occurred to me that there could well have been more to it. But now it was the next morning, those moments well in the past and not acknowledged in any way by either of us in the moment. Ragna was back to her usual sober, shy cerebralness, and it would take me making a proactive effort again to get inside those defenses, should I have and take advantage of the opportunity to try again. Ragna seemed to be at her best and most comfortable playing cards and playing the persona of the dealer, the croupier. I had a sudden humorous sexual fantasy of her and I playing strip poker her down to her bra and panties, saying to me in her modulated monotone croupier voice, three of a kind beats your two pair. Please remove your underwear. With all those thoughts going through my head, I smiled at her and hoped, or feared, she was somehow telepathic. Maybe she even was, but she instead delivered bad news. She and Monica were leaving on the train that evening down to Interlaken, to head on to Venice, coincidentally retracing in reverse the route I had taken coming up to Grindelwald. Their plan for their last day was to take the Cog Railway, which followed a tunnel up through the Schreckhorn and the Eiger, to the Jungfrau Jak Railway Station near the summit of the Jungfrau, and from there continue up to the Sphinx Observatory. At nearly 3,600 meters above sea level, it was one of the highest observatories in the world, in the saddle between the Jungfrau and the Munch, with what they had been told was an amazing view of the Aletsch Glacier, part of an entirely alien world up there of ice, snow, and rocky peaks, kilometers above the Earth environs we humans frequented. I had heard from several people and had read the pamphlets at the hostel check-in desk about the Jungfraubahn, one of the only a handful of cog railways in the world, this one employing the 
Stroobe rack system with electric-powered cog wheels in each train car, gripping a special two-third rail between the other two. The railway began at a station near the base of the Schreckhorn and stopped at several underground stations inside the mountains with viewing windows on the side of the Schreckhorn and the Eiger. The final Jungfraujak station at the top was also underground, but had a way up to the observatory and a tunnel to a place called the Ice Palace, a giant cave inside the glacier. It sounded like a really unique thing to do, and a tale worth telling ever after once you'd seen it. You guys want to come with us? Monica queried. I was so tempted to say yes, both for what sounded like a great adventure to a unique place, plus getting to spend one last day with those two bigger-than-life female types, and maybe have some sort of special moment with Ragna, if that were somehow in the cards, as it were. But the train up and back cost a total of 60 Swiss francs, about $20 U.S., I had about $100 in American Express traveler's checks, plus just 15 Swiss francs left. I had 13 days to finance until my plane flight home, scheduled for December 11th. At $6 a day, that was $78, leaving me a reserve of just 27 and I would have to use some of that reserve to pay for the boat ride across the North Sea so blowing 20 bucks of that reserve for the COG railway ticket seemed like taking a big risk. There was time, in theory, to get more money wired from my mom, say to Amsterdam or London, but that would involve making an expensive phone call, plus I did not want to hit my mom up again, knowing how tight her budget was and with Christmas coming up when she generally spent what little money she could squirrel away for gifts. And what a nightmare for me to run out of money a day or more before my plane flight. So reluctantly, I passed on the Cog Railway excursion. Derek, Matt, and notably Michael passed as well. Beth and some of her Aussie guys went along, as well as several others. Their plan was to be back before dinner. It was frustrating to ponder if this was one of those once-in-a-lifetime unique experiences that I would later regret not doing. One final memorable adventure with Monica and Ragna, particularly since Michael was not going. I certainly had my share of regrets of missed opportunities in my life to date, but most of those were all about my timidity. This was more about pragmatism and thrift. So they headed out, full of anticipation of their adventure ahead, and the rest of us stayed behind, hoping at least to hear the details when they returned. Derek suggested that we guys, with Z, grab trays from the dining room and go out sledding. He seemed transformed in the last two days from his sourness when I first met him and his Cleveland buddies in Florence and when I had reconnected with them what seemed like a forever two days ago here in Grindelwald when he had gone on about Monica being a slut. Now he seemed mellower, more at peace, even a bit joyful, and not worried about asserting or protecting some sort of alpha status with his travel comrades. I had first noticed this new, 
or at least different persona, that first night at the tavern in town when he had instigated and then joined with me leading the singing of the Beatles' Yellow Submarine, like he had found some larger purpose beyond angstily defending some imaginary entitlement and status. And then he had befriended the two British guys, Malk and Dredd, who seemed to truly enjoy him as a peer, unlike Matt and Michael, who seemed to just put up with him, given, I assume, past baggage between the three of them that I did not know about. So Derek and I, Michael and Matt, plus Malk and Dredd, headed out into the snowy wonderland with our trays. We found a fairly steep gully by the hostel where a bunch of kids were sledding on real sleds and round saucers. As the big snowflakes continued to flutter down out of the sky, the first time we did a hair-raising ride down into the gully on our little trays, all adult pretense left the six of us. We were kids again, too, laughing, screaming, crashing and stumbling and throwing snowballs at each other like the others half our age. We tried hooking our trays together in various configurations, the most effective one being forming a sort of train, hooking your legs around the person on the tray in front of you. But it always ended up in a very theatrical train wreck, somewhere down the gully, the one behind tumbling over the one in front. After we all had tired of tray riding and the younger kids were starting to warm up to us in their midst, Derek suggested that we organize a game in the snow and include some of the younger kids who wanted to join us. Like at the tavern last night and at the hostel earlier, it did seem like Derek was an instigator. Malk seemed keen on that suggestion. We should play bulldog. You Yanks ever do that one? You start with two bulldogs in the center, and everyone else tries to run from one side of the field to the other without being tackled by the two of them. If you get tackled, you become another bulldog, and everybody left tries to run back. Derek nodded approvingly. We called it bull rush. Dread chimed in, always seeming to be the friendly contrarian to Malk, or at least providing a different perspective. My mates and I called it zombies. You blokes ever see Night of the Living Dead? We were all bricking it after that one. Matt, Michael, Malk, and I all nodded that we'd seen it and had all shit a few bricks ourselves, while Derek played it a bit above the fray. Yeah, he drawled. Kind of scary, I guess. Undead and all. One of the young, maybe ten-year-old boys standing nearby listening to us nodded and said, Zombies. His friends looked at him, not knowing that word, and he said to them in German, Untot. I knew tot was German for dead, so untot had to be undead. So we organized the game, defining the field and the end lines. To give the young kids that joined us the advantage, we older types who were it behaved like slower-moving zombies when trying to catch them, rather than faster-moving bulldogs when after each other. It wasn't quite like the previous sledding and traying, where the age difference between us older teens and the preteens had completely disappeared. We now had a role to play as relative elders, making sure the younger kids didn't get injured. Through many rounds of the game, everyone was tackling everyone else. 
more gently so with the younger kids, and it was my opportunity to get closer with Michael. On several occasions, we were the two who were it and enjoyed our physical collaborations, particularly tracking down Derek, of course, as bulldogs and the younger kids as zombies. Then it morphed into a friendly competitiveness when we were up against each other, bulldog versus prey. I found I enjoyed being tackled by him, and he seemed to enjoy being tackled by me as well. One time I ended up on top of him, as I had been told in detail Monica had, when the two played bumper trays sliding down the road to the tavern. Me now squatting on his stomach and him making only half-hearted attempts to squirm and get away. The urge came upon me to put snow in his face like Monica had. Was it playful payback somehow for being jealous of the two of them, supposedly having had sex? And if so, was my revenge on him for stealing Monica from me or on Monica by stealing her guy from her? Either way, I found myself flinging two gloves full of fresh snow in his brown friendly face. Though initially shocked, I quickly sensed his enjoyment of the intention and we had the briefest moment of sorts, though it wasn't going to go any farther than that. It was yet another instance of that intimacy I craved, regardless of the sex of my partner of the moment. And again, I could see why she had such a thing for him. He was gentle and playful and always had such a good energy about him. Our continuing escalating physical encounters in the bulldog game were framed as punishment or payback, but there was an attraction there between us, which in some parallel non-patriarchal universe might have led to something more. Then as the game petered out, a bunch of the younger boys challenged us to a semi-organized snowball fight, each side taking an initial half hour to build a snow fort before the hostilities began. The fresh snow was great packing, and beach ball-sized snowballs rolled carefully in it soon became the spherical building blocks of our Fort Danger and their Grossa Festung. We mostly hid in our forts and lobbed snowballs at theirs. They would occasionally try to outflank us, but we would beat them back. Malk and Dredd were particularly fun, playing the part of two wacky commanders, giving contradictory orders and then descending into chaos to the delight of the youth on the other team. We were right there with those preteen boys on the other side. Yeah, we were almost a decade their senior, but we all remembered being them, spending a joyous day living in the moment out in Mother Nature's wonderful winter offering. Finally, when we had had enough and it was getting to late afternoon, we very theatrically surrendered and were led out of our fort single file, hands above our heads, and then the kids went crazy destroying our fort. But I, at least, had taken my playful vengeance on Michael. So concludes the 35th chapter of Two Inch Heels. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next chapter where Monica, Ragna, and Beth return from their journey up to the Sphinx Observatory and there is a new chapter in the Monica story.